And welcome to Sometimes Dead is Better. And it's me, Kristen. And me, Chris. And here we are in our part two episode of our Night of the Hunter episode. Yes, and I've uh, moved into my uh, closet to escape a torrential downpour and a possible hurricane outside. Oh my gosh. Just make sure you save Cassie. Right. So once again, I apologize. Uh, My audio is going to be a little bit wonky because I don't have a microphone. Uh, and don't blame Kristen for that. But again. last time you said that, and the microphone was my fault because it was all mine was staticky because I'm pretty sure I spilled beer on it at one point, and then I think Elise knocked it over. So that was my fault. Well, I think my cave of sounds uh, <laughs> audio eclipsed your uh, whatever problems you were having. So well, we're we'll good. we'll figure this out. So what do we do in our part two? You research and. Uh, compile a true crime that loosely or sometimes directly in this case ties to the movie we're watching yeah we haven't had a lot that directly influence or are based on the true crime can, can yeah. you think of another one the texarkana murders yeah well i, I do like your zelda story from pet cemetery that's a good one but yeah i think this is the one that's most directly related i mean i think ed gein and texas chainsaw is inspired but it's not like actual, it's not a movie where Jared Leto is playing Ed Gein or whatever. <laughs> it's not. If only. It, <laughs> what's he up to? Oh, I think he's still fuming about not being the Joker. Did you hear about that? No. He's so furious. He wanted to be in the Joker movie, the uh, you know the one with uh, what's his face? Joaquin uh, Phoenix. Yeah, and he was furious that he didn't get it, and so apparently he's been sending notes and firing his agents and all kinds of stuff, and he's never oh heard from gosh. again. Oh my gosh. That is crazy. He already got to play the Joker. Yeah, I could be embellishing that a little bit, but apparently it was a pretty big deal for him. Oh my goodness. Let's talk about a couple of things. We usually get right into the true crime, but there was a trailer for Bly Manor, which is the new yes. haunting of Hill House, and a trailer for The Stand. Yes. Which I did not realize, realize was going to be on CBS, which is a... CBS All Access. Okay. So it's a little less exciting. Yeah, but I think because it's on... Uh, the uh, what do you call it the streaming thing they can still curse and have nudity okay. and uh, all that stuff like on the Star Trek show they have on there they use the F word is Alexander Skarsgård gonna be naked that's all Almost I will certainly yeah. okay all right, good. <laughs> you didn't see that in the trailer <laughs> I will say the trailer because uh, I'm so used to the miniseries I thought this isn't the stand and then I realized <laughs> well it's you know 35 years later whatever uh, well I still but, am uh, excited about doing the stand when we stay up all night Yes. And maybe uh, record every hour or so. Yeah. Blind Manor looks good. I love Haunting of Hill House. And for the last few years, like when it gets, when it starts to get cold outside or if, when it starts to get folly, like I want to watch that specifically. So I'm so excited that. Is it on your background right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited that this time, this October, there's going to be a brand new one. I mean, how exciting is that? I can't wait. We really are dependent on these new TV shows and Netflix things and whatnot because there's just no movies coming out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
which is good because we want to be safe. Yeah, you could go see Tenet and risk your life if you want. AV Club article where they said that they weren't going to send any of their reviewers to go to the movies. Yeah, the blank check guys are the same thing. Oh, wow. They want them to do a, a you know, one-off episode because I guess they've already done Christopher Nolan and they said no. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. All right, so let's get into this serial killer yes. who you were kind of sad to see was not nearly as handsome as Robert Mitchum. He was, uh, is it homely? Is that the one that means you're not attractive? Yeah, <laughs> okay. so. What is homely that's attractive? I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. We'll never know. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be talking about the serial killer, Harry Powers, who the character in Night of the Hunter, played by Robert Mitchum, was Harry Powell. And so the movie is, of course, based on the novel, Night of the Hunter, by Davis Grubb. And then James Eggie and um, Charles Lawton made that into the screenplay. But it's all based on the actual serial killer murders that happened back in the 30s by this guy who called himself Harry Powers. And so this is like an old-timey catfish tale, which is kind of interesting. Did, did you do like Catfish, the documentary? Yeah, I haven't seen... Well, maybe I have seen the show, but yeah, I've certainly seen the, um, you know, the original movie. Um, I loved the movie. And I know that they said that maybe it was some people thought that there were parts made up or that oh, maybe I didn't, I didn't know that. So we got catfished. <laughs> oh, damn. Maybe. I think that maybe there. If... I'm really proud of that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe there were some scenes that they reshot like they didn't didn't actually actually have the camera running. But I like to think that the whole story was real. So I think they were trying to make a different documentary, right? And then it kind of went yeah. evolved into this. Well, I think if it wasn't, if it was made up, I think they would have gone a lot farther than it with it. You know Maybe. what I mean? Because it, it ended up being not like that crazy. Yeah, there wasn't a yeah. there wasn't a murder. You're right. Yeah. Maybe they could have made it much more fantastical than it was. But yeah, it's very sad. He was the original catfisher, though. You're right. Yes. <laughs> well, there's a lot of these. Back in the day, I guess they would call them either Bluebeards or the women were called Black Widows, where they would get uh, husbands or wives and either take out life insurance policies and then kill them off somehow and take their money. This was just a regular old day back in the 1900s, I guess. Yeah. But so in 1892, Herman Drank was his original name. He was born in Holland. And then in 1910, the family moved to the States. Even before they moved, I think they didn't have a lot of information on his early life, which I think I'd really like to have some more information on. Because you're already imagining like a Hannibal situation. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so even before they immigrated back in Holland, he had like a bad reputation. He was known to be violent and get in some trouble already. But there wasn't any information a lot on his family, especially his mother. You know, just because we talked about so many serial killers like Edward Kemper, who all of their hate seemed to stem from their mothers. Or, I mean, even Ed Gein, where a lot of that, all of his kind of fucked upness came from his mother. It's not always the case, obviously, because there's Ted Bundy, who seemed to have a somewhat normal childhood. Wasn't there something about that, though? They, well, they mentioned that he was adopted. He found out later in life, and maybe that upset him. But then in the documentary, mm. he kind of seemed like it was no big deal, but maybe it affected him more. But there was no outright abuse. I mean, we talked about even the the last crime we talked about. The Bandy crime? The Mandy crime. You know, even the guy in that, Drew Carl, even he, he was abused as a kid. His dad 
psychologically abused him and he ran away. So I, I don't know if there's anything in his childhood that that caused this or if it was just he had a, you know, some sort of abnormal personality disorder. For some reason, I just thought that immigrants would get the job done. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's pretty ambitious, you know? It is very ambitious. Yeah. Well, he came to the United States thinking that he... Just immediately started murdering people. Yeah. Like, he didn't want to have the life his dad did as a farm worker. He got a job on a farm, but he never even started the job because he became a petty thief and he was traveling around the country. And then in 1921, he fell in love with a woman named Rose Strickland, who was married. And she broke up with him, and he set her house on fire. <laughs> I mean, that's not funny, but... <laughs> so he was arrested for that. He served time. He was in and out of trouble. He met another woman named Luella Struther through what they called matrimonial bureaus, or the Lonely Hearts Club, which we have talked about before on our Crimson Peak episode. I read about matrimonial bureaus. I mean, mm-hmm. can you explain that a little bit? Is that just a synonym for Lonely Hearts Club type vibe or it's a more polite way of... Yeah. So the Lonely Hearts killers were also, they used this same tactic where they would put letters into the newspaper and then they would be responded to by women, usually women, older women who had been widowed and needed help. I mean, it wasn't like today where you're going on Tinder and sending a message and you might go on a but, date. This is like today because I was just reading an article in the Birmingham News, basically, about how, and they were very careful to uh, delicately describe what was going on. But the article was like, people going on social media websites are being uh, abused, hijacked, and robbed. And the, the clear implication was people on Grinder <laughs> oh. are, are meeting people in abandoned houses because they think they're about to hook up. And they're being uh, you know, robbed, basically, yeah. and their cars are being stolen. And usually it's like there's a fake picture. So that's kind of like the modern day Lonely Hearts Club. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's been plenty of murders and, I mean, abuse and robberies from meeting people you don't know that's yeah. been over and, the years. There was the Craigslist killer back in the day. And the um, sad thing was the the story ended and the they went out of the way not to identify the social media site as Grindr because it was obviously what it was. Oh, my gosh. Um, the end of the story was that they don't actually know how many people have been uh, victimized because people are too embarrassed to come forward to the police. Yeah, I'm sure. Because you have to admit that, well, although I don't think they really care. But uh, So anyway, it's sad. I'm off social media. <laughs> <laughs> the dating sites today, you could, very common to just meet up just to have sex or just to have fun, or you could go on a date. You know, but with this, it, I mean, it's in the name. It's matrimonial. Like you are, you're looking for someone to marry you, like right off the bat. Like this isn't like you can't really get to know the person. I think maybe that's the only way it was allowed. You know. Well, I guess the idea is you will get to know them through the letter writing campaign. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Men and women could place an ad, which I mean, it does seem it seems romantic. It seems romantic. Like, I remember finding letters that my grandfather had written my grandmother during World War II. Like, so he was off in the Navy. And, I mean, it was just, like, so romantic. The matrimonial bureau that he used was called the Detroit American Friendship Society. And it was started in 1927, and it stayed active even through the Depression. It's still was lucrative. The annual fee was a dollar ninety five for women and four ninety five for men. It's interesting. Yeah. I wonder why. I don't know. Women don't have money, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That is true. So Harry, 
put an ad, and that's how he found Luella. They got married. But even after he was married, he kept putting ads into the Friendship Society. And he would write that he was a wealthy widower worth $150,000, and his wife would be given $400 to $2,000 a month. He said he owned a beautiful 10-room brick home, completely furnished with everything that would make a good woman happy. My wife would have her own car and plenty of spending money. She would have nothing but to do but enjoy herself. He um, said he was a civil engineer. So also part of it was that he would tell them that he was very important. And so he had to travel a lot because there was big engineering things that needed to be done. So that's how he could kind of get away from his other wives. Absolutely. (laughs) Do you think he was going by Harry by this point? Had he already changed his name? Well, so he was going by the name Harry Powers in Clarksville, West Virginia. But when he placed the ads, he used an alias as Cornelius Pearson, Hmm. which is a pretty, it sounds like a pretty regal name. It kind of (laughs) reminded me of the, when we talked about the uh, the Parasite episode, the true crime about Clark Rockefeller. Like, what kind of name would you choose if you could just make up your own identity? I suppose Cornelius does sound pretty blue blood. Yeah. Okay, so he married Luella. They married and lived in Clarksville, West Virginia. This was in 1927. Luella owned a farm and a grocery store, or her family did. And so, like I said, he kept advertising himself, and he got the attention of a woman named Asta Asher, a 50-year-old widow from Illinois. She had three kids, Greta, 14, Harry, 12, and Annabelle, 9. So they start corresponding, and he decides to come visit her. Asta asked her tenant, William O'Boyle, to move out because she said Mr. Pearson, who was a family friend, was going to be coming to stay. So in 1931, he came to Park Ridge, Illinois, to meet her. He stayed with the family at their house for about five days. And then on June 27th, 1931, Astor told all of her friends that she had to go east on a work trip. Astor left the kids with a babysitter. Five days later, the babysitter got a letter saying that Astor would be staying in the east and her friend Cornelius would come and get the children. So this was very similar to Harry, Reverend Harry Powell, excuse me, who was writing letters to make it seem like Willa had left or he, he would leave and then postmark a a letter from somewhere else to make it seem like they were where he said they were. So Harry came and took the kids, but the neighbors were still suspicious because uh, especially when Harry came back and started moving everything out of the house. Yeah, well, I imagine the babysitter was suspicious. Like, yeah. It's like, I'm babysitting for a week <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then you're just gone? Yeah. yeah. Well, then also the, other, the old tenant was still kind of hanging around and he was suspicious and the neighbors called the police And when the police came, he introduced himself as Cornelius Pearson of the Fairmont Hotel from Fairmont, (laughs) West Virginia. Yes. Esquire, senior, the third. And he provided a letter that he said was from Astor that he had paid her mortgage and was preparing the house for rental. But the neighbors were still suspicious. So to the police's credit, they actually kept investigating. So Harry told them that he was from Fairmont. So that's the first place they started investigating, but no one there had ever heard of him. So then Greta's friend, who was the oldest daughter, she received a letter from Greta saying that she was having a great vacation. So he's really like doing his research. He's sending these letters out to everybody. 
but the letter was postmarked from Clarksville, West Virginia. There's also love letters that had been sent from Cornelius to Asta that were postmarked from Clarksville. So then they go to Clarksville. So they track that back to the P.O. box. And the mailman said that a lot of mail comes in, but this guy named Harry Powers picks it up. And Harry Powers lived in Quiet Dell with his wife as of four years, Luella, which is pretty good police work, especially for 1931. Which always reminds me of the John Mulaney bit whenever he says, how did they even solve <laughs> crimes back in the 1930s? They're just like a pile of blood. Oh, clean it up. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah. My my own research, which was adorable, it did seems like they caught him pretty quickly. Yeah. Like once they kind of figured out, like, well, we should investigate this a- avenue, and they're like, oh, there he is. <laughs> so they find Harry and they pick him up. He says he puts he put Astor on a train, sent her to Colorado. She was going to go marry someone else, but then also she had told everybody that she was going east. So things aren't lining up. So on August thirty first, nineteen thirty one. The police go to Harry's home. That's today. Oh, that that just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. That is. And they find some creepy shit. So about a mile from his home, he had built a garage out of cement. And there was no windows. And inside, it was broken up into small cells with locking doors. Which a lot of this reminds me of... H.H. Holmes' murder castle, you know. Well, remind me of the the Silence of the Lambs, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just the large, you know, murder basement. Yes, yes. It also reminds me of Hannibal. How many times a day do you say, that reminds me of Hannibal? (laughs) (laughs) Many. Many times. Man, this is show and tell. (laughs) (laughs) So also, where these cells are, there's women's and children's clothes scattered around. There's jewelry and they find clothes and jewelry that specifically belongs to Aster and her kids. There's also a bloody footprint of a child, which, as I said before, it reminds me of H.H. Holmes' murder castle, but on, obviously on a much, much smaller scale. But one of the creepiest things about his murder castle was that they found in one of the rooms that he locked people in, they found a footprint like on the outside, of, like, like they were kicking it, trying to get it open. So outside, they find four bodies who identified as Aster and her kids, wrapped in burlap sack and buried in shallow graves. They found another woman's body, who they later identified as Dorothy Lemke, who was also a 50-year-old widow from Massachusetts. Dorothy met him through the Lonely Hearts ads. She withdrew $5,000 from her bank account, sold $8,000 in stocks, and then told her friends she was going to go live with Cornelius. And then no one ever heard from her again. They found letters from over 100 widows. And it seemed that he'd been collecting these letters for over a decade. They also found, this was creepy to me, they found a camera with undeveloped photos of him and Dorothy. And this is one of those things, too. I was like, did they have cameras back then? Like, I always just, just, I just think, like, I still think they had, like, the big box, you know, and they hold the light up. The light bulb explodes. I mean, what year is this? 1931, is what you said? Yeah, 1931. So Harry confesses to the murders. He says that he took Aster first back to the farm, then went back for the kids, brought the kids back and locked them up for a few days. Then he hung the kids 
one by one, which reminds me of Blair Witch, which is one of my the creepiest. I had forgotten that, but now I'm uh, upset. <laughs> can we do Blair Witch? We can do Blair Witch. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually a, a one we haven't discussed. Do Blair that's Witch a pretty soon. obvious one to do. Okay. This is a quote from Harry. He said, I was permitting little Harry Iker to watch the killing of his mother and the others, but in the middle of it, he let out an awful scream. I was afraid the neighbors would hear it, so I picked up a hammer and let him have it. How terrible is that? So all of them were hung except for little Harry, who was bludgeoned to death. Dorothy came the next day after the kids were murdered. When Harry was asked how many people he'd murdered, he simply said, I don't know. And after this came out, tons of women came forward who had been contacted by this Cornelius Pearson. Estee Stores said her wedding day had been planned the day that Harry had been arrested. That's terrifying. Yeah. A lot of women had emptied their bank accounts and then he ghosted them, which was probably the best case scenario that he just took their I'm money. I'm kind of interested that these people would, you know, jettison their bank accounts based off just, you know, letters, like not even photos or ever meeting these people. I mean, I get like wanting to meet them and like, you know, see what happens. But to, to take the extra step of just like liquidating all your all your assets before you even meet the dude that's i know oh well i mean i guess that like we talked about night of the hunter this is the 30s you know this is the great depression maybe people are desperate yeah more than usual the lonely hearts killers i think were in the 30s too so i don't know if it's just of that time i mean it makes sense with asta because she was a widow with three kids and she was having a really hard time in december 1931 his trial started. It was actually moved from the courthouse and was moved to a 1,200-seat opera house in Clarksville because of the huge crowds that it that it brought. He was mobbed by the townspeople. Just like in the movie. Yeah. Which is very similar So I to think that ending. answers your question uh-huh. a little bit because you got pretty fired up about that at the end of the movie. Like, why would this happen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think they were just sort of referencing the actual crime, I, I would guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess they the people were very upset. I guess it also... Like when we watched the Ted Bundy documentary, there all those people were out there with their signs. You know, I was and there what too. Do we, what do we say? Bird Bundy <laughs> right. Bird. <laughs> so I mean, I guess that makes sense. I mean, I, I'm if you think about any large trial, there's always huge crowds, but I just it, it's never depicted the way it was in Night of the Hunter, where they were like they literally had like torches and pitchforks. Yeah. And I mean, I guess in, like I mean, in the real story, it seems like. I know a lot of the articles I read like to call him the first serial killer. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I feel like we've already done some ones before then. Well, I think H.H. H. Holmes is considered oh, really? the first serial killer. He, yeah, well, I mean, he was that was 1900, right? That was the World's yeah, Fair. Yeah, I noticed the uh, contemporaneous article I read about uh, where where the guy was hanged, and it was like a, actually read. They called him a the mass slayer, which is like so close. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do wonder, like, you know, for that time, that must have been such an incredible thing, especially the fact you're killing women and children, you know, for what it's worth. I guess that would make you maybe turn out the streets. I mean, maybe. I mean, and also, you know, it's a small town. And, you know, I guess that makes a slight amount of sense. Mm -hmm. But the movie, you're right. The way that was presented in the movie, it does kind of come a little bit out of left field. Well, it's another thing from the movie you had talked about, like, so he comes to town and, you know, why does... What does he have to offer? What money does he have? And they don't go into it in the movie, but it seems like... And then later they say he had 25 wives that he murdered. So it seems like he actually married these people, these women, and then probably took all their money 
like Harry Powers did. Maybe took out a life insurance policy, maybe just liquidated all their assets the way that he did. So he probably has a lot of money, but they didn't go into right. that in the movie. But I think that's what they're what they're referencing. So he confesses to the police, but during his trial, he recants that and says that he didn't actually do it. He was just very miserable in his marriage. And that's why he was reaching out to these women. It was all very innocent. But the jury deliberated for an hour and a half and found him guilty, sent him to hang. He was hung in Moundsville in March 1932 at the state penitentiary gallows. He walked up 13 steps and stood behind a black curtain where 42 people were watching him. I liked how they described, this was an article that was written in 1932. And that's what I was talking about. And and he wore a pinstripe suit with a bright blue necktie. He, I mean, he had um, turtle shell glasses. I mean, the way they described it, like you could really picture it. He came out and scowled at the audience. When asked to give a last statement, he just said no. Yeah, but I wonder, the, the article you're referencing, I mean, the, the guy that wrote it, um, I'm pretty sure it was a guy, they seem to be, I don't know, mythologizing him a little bit in the moment. So you almost, like, mm-hmm. they describe his suit and how fabulous it looks and um, how stoic he was and how he didn't give an inch. And it's like, well, maybe you just really love this story. <laughs> uh, right. So, I'm, you know, I, 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 you know, that's probably all, I've no reason to believe it's not true, but there could be a little bit of uh, fantasy there as well. It was sensationalistic, yeah, voyeuristic, yeah. He yes. could have walked up there and just shit his yes. pants. I mean, he knows. <laughs> He's a serial killer. <laughs> so the chaplain said, We commit Harry Power's soul to thee and ask that thou pardon his sins. And then he hung there for 11 minutes until Dr. R.A. Ashworth, the prison physician, said that he had died. That sounds pretty terrible. Yeah. To be hanging there for 11 minutes. And I think they, even the article, they say it usually takes eight to like 12 minutes to die from hanging, unless your neck maybe breaks on impact. But yeah, I would hope that maybe you lose consciousness and are brain dead pretty quickly. Maybe you just don't technically die for a while. But that, that, I'd rather have the guillotine. Give me the guillotine. Burn, baby, burn. (laughs) (laughs) His wife, Luella, didn't claim the body. Really? And he was buried in Potter's Field. What happened to Lowell, I wonder? She just I don't, lost I don't know. Yeah, she probably... I mean, that's disturbing. There's also some other murders that he may have been tied to. There was a murder of a guy named Dudley C. Wade, who was a fellow carpet sweeper salesman, who disappeared in May 1928. Dudley and Harry worked for the same company, and when Dudley disappeared, Harry took over management. And also, when Dudley disappeared, there was a lot of money that went missing. And so Harry was saying that he must have taken it and disappeared and changed his name and started a new life. So that seems like exactly his M.O. So it definitely seems that he did murder before. Did they discover this like around the time when it happened or is this like much later? Like uh... Much later. I think there was suspicions because there was another murder that he was tied to where I think he was renting a garage and a woman went missing and the lady who rented the garage to him like told him that something smelled really bad in there and then a few days later this woman's body was found near it so there's i think they definitely tie him to some others i think you had mentioned that some people have said he killed up to 50 people i don't know where they get that number from but i think there's definitely more murders than just these five. He went to the gallows saying he was innocent. And even after he was hung, the judge, the DA got a letter from him 
again, stating his innocence and saying that his trial should have been acquitted or he should have been moved somewhere else. And he said to the end that he was not guilty. There's bodies in your backyard. That is interesting. I mean, I do wonder, like, you know, if you know you're going to be hung anyway, I guess you're, that's very Ted Bunny situation. I mean, what does it matter? Why not admit to I all I don't that? know. I guess there's always a chance that maybe you'll still somehow get off or something. Or... Mm-hmm. But so at least in Night of the Hunter, the movie, it's not as tragic. I mean, we, we know that Willa doesn't make it and there's been apparently 24 other women, but the children, that probably would have been too much. Even for today, that was too much. Like we talked about in Dr. Sleep, even the child murder in that was still is still causing controversy. So I think the way they adapted it was was very good. Plus, it would have really ruined the whole sort of, you know, fairy tale aspect of it. Apparently, Charles Lawton, the director, was really mean to the girl, the little girl. What? To make her cry? Yeah, or... and, the re- and the reason that she's usually so upset in the scenes is because he has just yelled at her. Oh, and they just kept that footage. Pearl. Not to really bring it down. But, um, so that's like simultaneously hilarious and upsetting because, yeah, I mean, what it did. Pearl. I mean, it's weird to say they didn't get along. She's four years old, but I guess she wasn't as cooperative, I guess, as maybe the, the boy. All right. Well, so that's Harry Powers. He was quite... I'm glad he was caught so quickly, um, unlike H.H. Holmes, so we'll have to talk about soon. I think that's it. Okay. Well, um, good movie. Good serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> Do we say that? <laughs> and uh, follow us on all of our stuff. Rate and review. I guess at some point... Uh, we should tease what we do next. That could be a fun little project. Oh, yeah. Um, that said, we have no idea what we're doing next. So there's no. <laughs> um, it's a pandemic, people. <laughs> All right. Bye. Good night. Hey, Chris. Hey. I just listened to the last episode of Sometimes That Is Better, and I have thoughts. Really? That is amazing because I just listened to our Child's Play 3 episode. <laughs> And boy, do we get some things wrong. So how do I tell us? How do we get in touch with us? I think the most fun way is to follow us on Instagram at Sometimes Dead Podcast. At Sometimes Dead Podcast. Slide into our DMs, comment on our photos. What about Twitter? Well, you can follow us on Twitter at Sometimes Dead 4. Twitter is fun because we like to tag all these famous people who will never see it, but it's fun to think that we can connect with them. Uh, we've gotten a few likes from famous people. That's um, true. Mary Lambert. Mick Garris. Mm-hmm. That's probably about it. The guy that uh, does a lot of the Twin Peaks uh, fandom, he, he liked us. Good, good. Also, another fun way is to, we have a Facebook group called Sometimes Groups Are Better. Right. In lieu of doing all that, you can always rate, subscribe, and review. Well, do that first. Rate and review on iTunes because that is the number one thing to do, apparently. It really helps us move up in the ratings, and then other people see us, and then we increase the community, and just, it's beautiful. Excellent. We'll do that first. Okay. Well, sounds good. Now, uh, let's go watch Child's Play 4. (laughs) Right. All right.